Gospel of Luke. Today we will be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. As we look at Luke's account of the birth of Jesus in these verses, we should immediately notice that as he begins to tell this most amazing story, that Luke stresses three important facts surrounding Jesus' birth. First, the political situation. And second, the information about Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. And third, the extraordinarily humble circumstances of Jesus' birth. Most of this information is in the first seven verses here of chapter 2. About the political situation of the day, Luke mentions Caesar Augustus's decree in verse 1. He's concerned with historical accuracy. But why does he begin with this reference? Well, mainly to explain why Jesus ended up being born in Bethlehem. Luke was writing especially for the benefit of Greeks, emphasizing Jesus' humanity, especially for them. So he especially wanted these non-Jewish people to see how the Old Testament prophetic dots connect as he unfolds the story. And as he does unfold the story, he hoped his readers would be as amazed as he was about God's wisdom and power. God's ability to use human events to accomplish everything that he sets out to accomplish. Matthew was written especially for Jews, emphasizing Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. Mark was written especially for Romans, emphasizing Jesus as God's servant. John was written especially to emphasize Jesus' deity and our need to believe in him. In verse 4, we see more information about Bethlehem being the city of David. Luke is logically emphasizing and taking his readers through the process of realizing Jesus' messianic claim. He carefully provides details about the extremely humble circumstances of Jesus' birth and is amazed at how the King of Kings and Lord of Lords enters the world that we live in. Each and every one of us should also be amazed. The heart of Luke's account is in verses 8 through 20, which is the angelic decree of the Savior's birth. And as we just saw, many think it was sung. Followed by the responses of the heavenly host, the shepherds, and finally Mary, Jesus' mother. If you are able, would you please stand as I read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. 
And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And meanwhile, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace toward those on whom God's sovereign pleasure rests. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's look more closely at the political situation and also the information about Bethlehem as we begin here. Luke begins with Caesar Augustus's decree that all the world should be registered, which of course is a census. The Roman Empire at this point in history was at the zenith of its glory under an emperor whose name, Augustus, literally means exalted one. Luke, in a very masterful way, is setting the stage here to contrast the decree of the most powerful man on earth with God's decree through his messengers, the angels. God uses the decree of Caesar Augustus to unfold his eternal plan of divine redemption. Think about that. This is nothing new. God used evil people and rulers and empires throughout the Old Testament to accomplish his purposes. We should stand in awe 
of our God, who is so powerful, mighty, and sovereign that he turns man's evil or impure intent into ways to ultimately bring glory and honor to himself as he carries out his plan of redemption. This is something that Luke is obviously amazed at, especially as he looks back on all these details and how they transpired. You can sense his reverence and awe for God throughout his account. How God uses human decrees to bring to fruition Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah and where he would be born is amazing. For instance, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, Epathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. This is amazing because it's so effortless for God to do such things. He does accomplish his purposes, and so he will accomplish his purposes. What seems impossible for us to figure out, God just does. Many or most times in ways that we would never even dream of. And here he uses a decree by the most powerful man on earth to usher in the working out stage of his divine plan of redemption, the incarnation. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity coming to live among us on earth in the body of a man, in the person of a man, and born as a baby. After giving a few more details, which his immediate readers would be familiar with in verse 2, Luke gets to the result that he wants to emphasize in verses 3 and 4. That all went to be registered, each to his own town, because Joseph was of the house and lineage of David, whose city Bethlehem was called the city of David. I don't know if you've ever checked, but this was no short excursion. It was from the north of Israel to toward the south. It's about 80 miles, and they walked. You can guess how long that probably took. For a very pregnant woman, maybe on a donkey, maybe not, 80 miles through hill country. Verse 5 tells us more important facts, too specifically, about Joseph and Mary's situation. The first important fact is that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Betrothed here means officially pledged to be married. We would call this an engagement, but our world does not really mean, our word doesn't mean the same thing as it does here. A Jewish couple, when engaged or pledged to be married, was viewed as technically married. They did not live together yet. That happened after the marriage ceremony. But the arrangement was binding. 
And the only way to be released from this engagement period was by a decree of divorce. The ground for divorce was sexual immorality. So even though the couple could not engage in sexual relations until after the marriage ceremony itself, there could be divorce if one member of the engaged couple was sexually active with anybody in that period. The fact that divorce was necessary to dissolve the marriage, even in the engagement period, shows how binding the whole marriage covenant was. The second important fact was Mary was with child. She was pregnant. In chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, we're told how the angel Gabriel came to Mary to tell her that God had chosen her to bear the promised Messiah and that she should call his name Jesus. Mary then immediately asked the big question, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, many have speculated that Mary and Joseph's trip to Bethlehem might have been a welcome getaway, since it might have been pretty rough in Nazareth, dealing with all the questions and the speculation about how Mary did get pregnant. The important thing to remember is that both Mary and Joseph were convinced of God's special and miraculous intervention. And they dealt with it and believed God. How hard was this in that particular culture, do you think? Very hard. And yet God's grace was more than sufficient. We know of several events during this whole process in which God encouraged them greatly. At our Christmas Eve service, we read all four Christmas passages. This passage is the third. And that comes from Matthew and Luke. The first of which in Luke 1 includes Mary's visiting her cousin Elizabeth, who was also pregnant with who? John the Baptist. Luke records what's known as the Magnificat, ten verses of what Mary testified in thanksgiving and praise about God's dealing with her in chapter 1 of Luke, verses 46 through 55. God also encouraged Joseph and brought him to a place of peace and faith and trust. God, in His grace, gave all sorts of confirmation and comfort to Mary and Joseph. They had to deal with a very delicate situation. And God gave them ways not to lose heart. Verse 6, 
in Luke 2. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now let's look at the extremely humble circumstances of Jesus' birth in verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped them in swaddling cloths and laid them in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. How would you describe this? Simple, humble. Wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Swaddling cloths were simply strips of cloth that were wrapped around the baby to keep the baby warm. Using a feeding trough, which is what a manger is, to put the baby Jesus in. Delivered the baby and stayed where the animals either were or had been. How do you germaphobes feel about that? There was no place for them in the end. Full, because so many others were there for the same purpose of registering for the census. And then Luke starts the section of the story which culminates in God's decree about this baby. Out to the fields in God's decree we go in verses 8 through 12. In verse 8, and in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now there's been a lot of debate down through church history about what time of year this all really happened. And some say that the shepherds wouldn't be out in the fields in the middle of winter. Don't let that bother you. But there's, because there's no real cause to accept this argument. Because the shepherds raising sheep to be used in the sacrifices during the spring would be living out in the fields at this time of year. More interesting is just the attention these shepherds received. Why? Well, after all, shepherds were not exactly near the top of the Jewish social ladder. This is not who you would expect, expect to be the first called or told about something that's the most important event in history. And yet, Israel's greatest king began as a shepherd. In fact, these men were ceremonially unclean much of the time because of their work. And they also were not highly regarded as dependable witnesses. And yet, who are the first to receive the news of Jesus' birth? God chose to bring the news to these men first. So they were the first to actually worship the Messiah. And I think we just need to stop for a second and just think about that. Kind of makes you smile, doesn't it? If you can, try to imagine this whole scene with the tranquility of the night suddenly broken. Verse 9. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shown around them. No wonder the text then says they were filled with fear. That's a nice way of saying they were terrified. 
This seems to be the normal response when an angel of the Lord appears and there's an account in the Bible. But the first thing the angel said to the shepherds, knowing this, was what? Fear not. Verse 10. And then, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Can you imagine how intently the shepherds were listening at this point? Then the angel continues in verses 11 and 12. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The whole message was short and simple. But when you think about it, it's really mind-boggling. For a people who had been waiting for the Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years, now he has come, and he's a baby. Notice, too, the not-so-subtle hint. And this will be a sign for you. You will find this baby. In other words, translate that. It means, go find him. And this will be how you'll know it's him. You shepherds, go find your Messiah. So then we see the angelic response in verses 13 and 14. You know, these guys have barely had time to hear this, much less digest what they've heard when something else absolutely incredible happens. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace toward those on whom God's sovereign pleasure rests. Just the announcement itself by one angel to the lowly shepherds is enough to bring out God's heavenly angelic army that's what host means. It's a military term. And there's no telling how many of this host we're talking about either. The angels in this heavenly host cannot contain themselves. What are they witnessing? They're witnessing something that takes them beyond anything they ever thought possible. And they always do what's appropriate and right when God's character is revealed in his redemptive plan among men. And that is immediately they give glory to God. What do they say? What divine decree do they communicate? First, they say glory to God in the highest which is the climax, really, of the whole story. 
The angels say this when they recognize the glory and majesty of God. So they're giving glory to the one who deserves it and to the only one who is worthy of our ultimate praise and attention and worship. These angels usually are in God's very presence, constantly worshiping him, are now utterly amazed at the work of God among men. It's one thing for us to be amazed. It's another thing for heavenly beings to be amazed. Now they see God's plan unfold by what must seem to be impossible means. God became a man and entered the world as a baby. How absolutely incredible. And second, in the angel's divine decree, the heavenly angelic host say something else, which the New International Version comes closest to translating correctly. Most correctly. When it reads, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. I know that's hard for some of us to swallow, being more of a paraphrased version. But it is the closest because the King James has messed this up. And it's the one that lasted. Not peace on earth, goodwill towards men. But the best translation is actually what I read earlier that, we will, that I'll explain here. And the King James Version is very misleading. It leads to implications that are just not true. The key here is what does peace mean? Peace here means the peace of God, given by God. Not the peace of the world or the peace in absence of war, etc., etc., etc. It's the peace of God, the peace with God, that comes only by being justified. Romans 5.1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to avoid the wrath of God in judgment is to be declared righteous in God's sight because of the perfect atoning sacrifice of his son Jesus in your place. That's the peace spoken of here by these angels. The peace that means there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So who does this peace go to? Everybody who tries to have the Christmas spirit? What do the angels say? God's peace is to those on whom his favor rests. An even better, clearer translation is the one I used in the reading. And on earth peace toward those on whom God's sovereign pleasure rests. In Luke, whenever you see pleased or well-pleased 
or goodwill. In each case, it's referring to God's sovereign good pleasure. God's good pleasure in the sense of his choosing. In other words, God's peace is not a reward for those who have goodwill. I need to say that again. 90% of the meanings on cards, advertisements, and anything that comes close to this decree is wrong. God's peace is not a reward for those who have goodwill. But instead, it's a gracious gift to those who are the object of his goodwill, of God's goodwill. This is completely consistent with the rest of Scripture. The host of heavenly angels come onto the scene here with the shepherds, praising God and making this declaration from heaven itself. They see God's plan unfolding, and they're amazed, and they're driven to worship. That God chose to direct his good pleasure on any of us is mind-boggling. Why? Because no one deserves it. Well, what was the shepherd's response in verses 15 through 18? They took off for Bethlehem in search of Christ, Messiah, and they found him, verses 15 and 16. Our text says they went with haste. Well, I guess so. The greatest event in the history of the world has just been announced to them, and they were not going to miss it. They not only saw, what else did they do? They testified to the word that they had heard about him. They made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered. Another word that also means amazed. At what the shepherds told them, verse 18. Being amazed and in wonder seemed to convey a common response to the Savior's coming. What was Mary's response to all this? Verses 19 and 20. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. We should give evidence of both of these responses that we see here, especially at this time of the year, but really all year in some form, we should reflect the shepherds who, when they returned, were glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And we should also do a lot more pondering Meditating on the meaning of it all. It's interesting to note that we want to ponder on what we treasure. In other words, we will ponder on what we treasure. 
So don't. No more excuses this week. Especially this year, you can hardly go anywhere anyway. What should be amazing to each of us, we need to ponder. I don't know how many other people do this, but down through the years, I found myself <coughs> up really late going into the living room, pitch black, turning on the Christmas tree and just sitting there trying to ponder because there's a lot to think about. Especially when you hear the characters that are involved, what was said and decreed, and the responses of all these people. We will ponder on what we treasure. And this is the meaning of it all, the meaning of Christmas, that God became flesh and entered the world through extraordinary means to carry out an extraordinary mission. Do you know the peace of God? Do you have the peace of God? Only in Christ is this real peace possible. Only in Him. Let's pray. Oh God, we are so humbled and grateful for your gift to us of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts this week to celebrate by glorifying and praising your name and pondering much more the wonder of being at peace with you through your Son. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for the benediction? Can you guess what it will be? How about glory to God in the highest and on earth peace towards those on whom God's sovereign pleasure rests. Amen. You're dismissed.